This is the Mindful Musical Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Miske. Before we jump into this week's interview, I wanted to share a bit of exciting news. I have developed a four-week introduction to mindfulness for musicians. Through four 30-minute private meetings with me and structured private practice on your own, you will gain an understanding of the main elements of mindfulness, learn some mindfulness practices, and develop exercises to incorporate mindfulness into your music making. If you are interested in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss this course and see if it's right for you, please reach out to me via Instagram at mindfulmusicallife or via email at mindfulmusicallife at gmail.com. My guest this week is Jarrett McCourt. Jarrett has been named one of Canada's hottest 30 classical musicians under 30 and currently serves on faculty at Vanderbilt University and performs principal tuba with the Ann Arbor Symphony Orchestra and the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. Passionate about mental health and suicide prevention, Jarrett has been a guest on popular music-themed podcasts including The Brass Junkie, It's Not Spit, It's Condensation, and Sound Mind the Musician, speaking largely about ways to stabilize and improve one's mental health as a musician in the 21st century. In his spare time, Jarrett works as a supervisor with the Crisis Text Line, a global nonprofit organization providing free crisis intervention and suicide prevention via SMS message. Jarrett has also visited several colleges, universities, and summer festivals to speak, including Northwestern University, the University of Michigan, DePaul University, the New World Symphony, and the Bacorny Low Brass Seminar. Moreover, Jarrett is a certified yoga instructor and is a firm believer in the positive effects of mindfulness on one's happiness. In this interview, we discuss the importance of mental health for all musicians at every level, how Jarrett keeps himself relaxed and focused through the demanding work of audition preparation, and some suggestions for how to monitor your own mental health and to offer support to others as well. Not only is Jarrett a performer at the highest level, but his experience with helping others with mental health makes his advice truly special. I know you are going to get a lot out of this, so without further ado, here's Jarrett. Hi, Jarrett. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you um, about the importance of mental health and wellness for musicians and, and all the other wonderful topics I'm sure we're going to stumble through today. So um, why don't we start with your experience of you know the importance of mental health and wellness for musicians and, and kind of why you see it as such a crucial thing for us all to be considering. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I li- I've listened to a couple of your podcasts already and I just I, I yeah I, when you asked me to come on I was like yeah for sure um so to answer your question um I think the whole mental health and musicianship thing is um really something that people have gone head first into over the past couple of years mostly as a result of the pandemic um I think a lot of people have basically been forced into treating their mental health and um, what I try to preach with my students is that mental health awareness and taking care of yourself, self-care in general, should be far more preventative than a solution to a problem that exists in your life. And just like going to the doctor, you should be taking care of your mind and your well-being far before you have any issues. And the reason why I bring this up, of course, is because I was definitely not someone who took care of himself at a young age. And when I was forced into essentially 
taking care of myself was when I was grinding so hard that I just, I, everything came off the rails. Um, so with my students and basically anyone I talk to, I just try to tell them to prioritize self-care even when your mind and your body are feeling good. I mean, we should always be making time for self-care before the day starts, during the day, and at the end of the day. And in general, again, I just feel like so many people wait until they're in a really bad place to do something about it. And that's just not viable, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. The um, I think for a lot of people, it's challenging to, especially, I love what you said about making a focus on preventative mental health care rather than reactive, you know? So be, being really thinking about, you know, checking in at, at a regular basis and really thinking about that. So I could imagine that being a challenge for a lot of people because I think a lot of us just kind of go, 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 and then something breaks and we're like, oh no, what happened? Mm-hmm. It must be just this one, was one event that broke me, not the hours and days and weeks and months previous to this right so what are some ways that we can kind of keep an eye out for for that kind of stuff like how do you how do you guide um, people into maybe tuning their awareness into their own mental health more regularly well so yeah this is interesting because most of the things that i recommend to my students in terms of tangible things that they can do to um, solve their issues are things that i've picked up on from the uh, suicide mental health anxiety uh, service prevention that I work for, Crisis Text Line. And essentially, uh, that service is in place for people who are in a really dark place and they need someone to talk to immediately, just like a suicide hotline or a, a, a crisis hotline. We need those services to sort of be there for people who don't have anywhere else to turn. And the goal of those services are to sort of act as a... Um, an intermediary essentially between you and um, you know your possible dark thoughts. So basically what we do on the on crisis text line is get to the root of the issue fairly quickly and then try to identify what the coping mechanisms for somebody are that they already have in place. So basically connecting them with the things that have worked for them in the past. And that's where mm-hmm. I go with my students uh, frequently because a lot of people I think view self-care as a selfish act. You know, if we are taking care of ourselves, that is time that we could be spending in the practice room, studying scores, listening to recordings, getting lessons, and grinding it out. But in reality, I try to hit home with my students that your attention, your focus is really like a cup of water. And if you are drinking all of that water and grinding every ounce out every single day, you are going to run out of water. (laughs) And then when you go to drink that water and you're thirsty, you're not going to have any water to drink. So it's important to, for me specifically, and for many of my students, to set boundaries around the times of day that we're working. So for example, Mm. I'm going to spend from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. working, and before that time is me time, and after that time is me time. And there might, you know, that those time boundaries sort of shift some days, if I start earlier or start later, whatever. But I know that my practicing needs to get done in that time, my score study needs to get done in that time, my emails need to get done in that time, and after that point, it's like 
things go away and I spend time with my girlfriend, I do some yoga, I talk to my parents on the phone. Those things, those are the coping mechanisms that I've identified for myself. And the other thing too is that a lot of people just think that maybe somebody else's coping mechanisms might work for them. And a lot of people don't do the work to identify the best coping mechanisms for you. I mean, some people love to play video games, but some people really don't love to play video games. Some people love to knit. Other people don't love to knit. And there's no shame in doing something that, of course, with the caveat that it's not self-destructive, like drinking or, you know, recreational drugs, but that we have something that is healthy for our bodies and our minds that we can do that is really kind of like our safety net that catches us at the end of a tough day or a tough week. So to sort of go back to your question, you were saying that what are those things? I mean, I have this personal toolkit that I go to when I've had a rough day or a rough week, but it's important for musicians, specifically music students early on to identify the things that work best for them. Um, And again, like I said, those things are very personal. Like I can recommend things to my students, but I always go first to, well, what has given you comfort in the past? And of course, then it's like, well, you know, hanging out with friends or doing yoga or going for a run or going for a walk, any of those things. I mean, whatever gets you to that place. Ultimately, it's your own personal mental health journey. And it's that work that needs to be cultivated early. Otherwise, I think we get into a situation where we're just grinding and grinding and grinding. And then we see rampant burnout. Yeah, the burnout thing is such a such a problem for so many of us, especially in the classical music world. Yeah, um, I'm sure you've experienced those. I mean, you were talking about those periods of our lives where we're so like almost verging on manic with how insane we are with our with our time and Mm -hmm. and working so hard towards something that we really really want that we really care a lot about you know so you can kind of excuse it as oh this is my passion this is what i want for my life so i'm gonna do everything i possibly can however um it's really hard to acknowledge the fact that if you're working like that you're not being as efficient with the way that you're spending your time as you could be Mm -hmm. right yeah so that's that's the hard part, right? For especially for a lot of younger music students, like where's that line? Like, how do you recognize that? So, I, I love the idea of setting some time boundaries. Like, for, so for you, it was it's best if you have a time frame during the day with that. That's my working time, and it can fluctuate depending on the needs of the schedule. However, it's a hard deadline, and then whatever I didn't get done, I can work on tomorrow or or whatever. Um, but to be really really focused on that, I think is is so crucial. Totally. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I've been thinking a lot about how, just in the context of orchestral auditions, for example, let's just say, um, for me, like if I grew up in New York City and then the tuba position opened in the New York Philharmonic, and that was what I'd identified as like my personal destiny. Like I always wanted that. This job opens once in a generation. So I get the list and then I work every single day very very hard to be as prepared as possible for this and it's funny because i i feel like the people i've talked to the people who are like personally invested in something are often the people who burn out really quickly on something because they want it so bad and typically in the people that i've seen both friends and and colleagues and students it's 
the, the people who the jobs that people win are oftentimes the ones that they are less personally invested in because that threshold for burnout goes down. This is something that's just kind of been on my mind lately, just in talking to people who have taken auditions where they're like, this is the job that I've wanted for my entire career. And then they, they sort of sound good, but then, I mean, they don't sort of sound good. They sound very, very good. And then something in the last couple of weeks, they just, they really, really push and push and push. And then there starts to get force in their sound. And then because they want it so bad, that comes through in their playing. And the times that I've been the most impressed with top-notch musicians, these are the people who make everything sound effortless. I mean, I'm sure that you've heard people like this in the past too, where it's great when someone can really nail something technically, but what is more impressive is that, you know, somebody nails something technically and then you're just like, wow, that wasn't an issue for them at all. So there's kind of, this is the, what I've negotiated for myself is that I see benefit in cultivating an effortlessness in my performance and my practice. So it's like, I will sound worse if I work harder, which is sort of how I've convinced myself to like set these boundaries around my work. It's like, you have to do this, otherwise it will make you sound worse and make you play worse. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The The idea of, of effortlessness in playing is, is so clear. If you start listening for it, you can hear the difference between someone who plays technically well, but is work, is like really pushing it and like mm-hmm. is using so much work, like physical or mental, emotional strain in their music. You can hear that versus someone who is just kind of letting, letting it happen a bit more and trusting a bit more. And you can't just make that decision on the stage either. So it has to come from all your hours of preparation too. It has to be effortless as well. Yeah. So, you know, say like when you're preparing for something, whatever it might be, even if you're just, you know, practicing your normal, your normal rep or your normal studies, etudes, whatever you might be working on in a week to week basis. Um, so what are some of the ways that you personally work on maintaining that effortlessness in every single repetition that you're doing? It's, I think, you know, for, for a while, my teachers were always like, play things half tempo, play things slow. And it's like, okay, everybody has said that. But I think really the revolution internally comes from committing to that slow practice. And it's not sure, okay, it's about, you know, lining up your fingers and making sure your breath control is there. And then making sure that, of course, when you're practicing half tempo or slow, you're playing along with a drone to check intonation. And you're playing along with a metronome to check that. But it's really about how can we make this sound as easy as possible. And this slow practice is the best arena to play things as comfortably as possible. I find that, you know, if I'm in audition shape and or, or for example, like, you know, if it's September and there's, you know, an audition in November and January and April, and I'm sort of in audition shape all year. If I haven't in the beginning part of the year in the fall, spent that time playing things very, very slowly and making things sound as easy as possible, I feel like I just don't have a chance to win those jobs because then force really gets into my playing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just, it really comes from this slow practice. But for me, like many things, it's been, how can I convince myself that doing something is worth my time? And for a while, 
everybody was saying, okay, practice slow, practice half tempo, spend three or four weeks practicing half tempo. That is mind numbing. I mean, especially <laughs> from my perspective as a tuba player, we have the same excerpts for like literally every audition. Maybe right. two or three are new. I would say like definitely one is kind of like an oddball in every audition. And it's always the committee that's like, oh, like let's throw something that they don't know in here. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to get them. <laughs> we'll be tricky this time. Yeah. They'll never expect this. Yeah. Oh my God. And there's been some real oddballs. And then 90% of the time, they don't ask for that excerpt on the actual audition because they don't know. The people on the committee don't know the piece anyway. So anyway, it's just, it's, it's, it's a moot point, but regardless, <laughs> I find that, you know, if I'm playing Meistersinger or Ride of the Valkyries for nine months, force will get in there early. So I'm always sort of reverting back to this place of ease. And for mm. me, that's drone half or 60 or 70% tempo, um, and tuner and just like working on intervals and trying to kind of smoothen out the edge because uh, you know in general i would say that my default as a player is more edge based than ease based so i really had to work to sort of take the edge and the grit out of my playing and it's funny i mean all the times that i've been either close or like you know in the semis or or in the finals or or runner-up several times it's been when people have been like really on board with the sound and you know you can always point to one thing and be like oh their intonation was really good or their time was really good or i really love what they did on this on this excerpt but i think the first thing of course that people hear is the sound and it's that is in many ways our calling card as a musician that's our identity so how can we cultivate the easiest and most relaxed and like you said effortless version of that sound and i think that really there's no way around it it comes from doing things really slowly and thinking about the quality of the sound you know dovetailing off of this from a performer's standpoint the i think there's a there's some it's it's worth talking about this approach with not just the time spent on the horn but also like in other aspects of your professional life as well, right? So let's say that you have to, you know, write a new bio or something like that. And if you're super stressed out the whole time trying to write it and you're just like pushing and pushing and, you know, you've had six cups of coffee and it's 1130 at night and you're trying to finish it because you feel like you have to that day or whatever, right? So that that kind of an approach to anything is going to result in a, in a lesser quality product, really. Yeah, there's a deep desire, I think, just as human beings, I would say musicians, but also human beings to just kind of get things done and not do things for quality. Um, I notice myself doing this with like tasks around the house. Like I would rather get the dishes done than get them done really well, (laughs) you know, (laughs) just so that there's no mess. And it's like, you know, sometimes I'll just like hide things away so that it's like, oh, it's clean, but is it really clean? No, I mean, right. the mess has just been relocated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I feel like in, so I do these these seminars at universities and I did a number of them during the pandemic about just self-care. And um, in the first part of the talk, I talk about just tangible ways that musicians can sort of simplify their life and lighten their load. And one of the biggest tenets of this was writing a list and just sort of knocking things out slowly and 
if I did, I mean, I, I'm doing this talk again, I think in February, and I think I'm going to take out that part because for a while, my life was very, you know, to-do list oriented. I was like, just got to knock everything out. And like, once that to-do list is done, it's great. But then I was noticing that like my to-do list was long and things weren't getting done very efficiently or they weren't getting done with quality. So now I've got like multiple lists. It's like I've got a day list, a week list, and a month list. And this day list is fairly short. It's things that I know that I can get done today. Mm. And then the week list, of course, is a little bit longer. And then the month list is, of course, larger products. It's like applications and um, I build websites in my spare time. So it's like that is typically on the, the month base thing it's like that takes a lot of time so it's like just sort of chipping away at it but right i think young musicians particularly are just like okay gotta get this assignment done gotta get this class taken care of gotta like do this lesson and it's like just every day we're kind of grinding out these lists which makes you feel good because you're doing things but there's definitely something to be said for doing things well and thoughtfully and mindfully rather than just trying to get everything done yeah, a lot of what you've been saying has been hitting the the mindfulness bell for me, you know, a lot of stuff. So the idea of of being being with the process as it's happening, right? So rather it's playing, you know, the master singer at half tempo for the hundredth time, or if it's, you know, vacuuming in a living room, either way that you're you're engaged with the process, right? So you're you're very intentional about the the mental color that you're adding to that activity. You know, and that's a choice that we can all make. You, you can be very bored and like upset that your teacher is making you play your scales at, you know, whole notes at 60 beats per minute. Or you can say like, OK, why am I being asked to do this and what can I get out of it? Like what yeah. what is the actual result that I can earn by being really, you know, intentional with the way that I'm like moving through this um, chore or activity or email list or whatever the project is that you're working on? Right. And I mean, that intentionality, I think, in many ways for me has been um, easier to cultivate as I've seen more of a through line in that mindfulness, but also seen more success in it. And especially with the through line, it's like, okay, so if I know that I have a big performance with like, for example, a new group that I've never played with, uh, and I've got to learn three pieces or four pieces that are kind of unfamiliar for me, and this is in two weeks, for example, like I will go really slowly, like, you know, learn a movement with a score every day. And then that brings me to maybe a week and a half out. Then I'm playing a movement with a recording every day. And then as I get closer, it's two movements. And then the day before I'm playing all the pieces of the recording and just being really mindful of, you know, who else is playing with me and all that. And having just those kind of like um those those targets i guess like like just moving through them slowly helps me just feel more in control and again i've seen a lot of success internally with this approach if i'm just like trying to you know if I, the first day i'm like oh, i'm gonna learn all of these pieces with the score and just like try to grind out this learning that's not gonna work and then you're just gonna feel overloaded um i work with um the trombone professor at Vanderbilt, his name is Jeremy Wilson, and he teaches this body, mind, spirit workshop. And he talks a lot about neuroplasticity with regards to learning. And I'm sure this is something that you've, you know, 
read about, talked about. But Mm -hmm. a core component of learning is rest. And being able to, you know, absorb something and then take 20 minutes and just go lie in a yoga mat. Or what's useful for me is doing some score study or if I have to do memorization, do that right before bed and then just Mm -hmm. be like, okay, gonna press save on this and then gonna go catch some Z's. And that always is more effective than trying to just cram it all in, especially the day before or a short period before. But anyway, this rest component is like crucial. And I've just noticed really some, some big success by using rest instead of just trying to cram everything in. Oh yeah, the 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 point of letting things kind of you know actually build connections in your mind after you've worked on them for a number of hours or whatever it might be, even if it's five minutes, and then you kind of let it set and let it kind of you know solidify in your mind, and then yeah. you come back to it. And it's it's always so nice when you work really hard on something the day before, and then the next day you come back to it, and it's like, oh, it's better. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> exactly. It, it's, it's, yeah. I noticed it really significantly. So so last year. Um, I got called to go on tour with Canadian Brass on two days notice. And um, of course they do a lot of their book memorized and I had played one show with them before. So the stuff was sort of there, but I have tried to basically like apply the way that I learned memorization to a lot of the things that I do learning other things. And essentially my approach to memorization, which has always worked for me in the past is like, I will memorize a section of a piece. Typically it's a page. Memorize the page, or, or sorry, try to learn the page and then just put it away. And then the next day, I will try to play that page to the best of my ability and then play page two. And then the next day, play pages one and two, memorize, and then learn page three. And I memorized that Canadian brass music for the first gig like that. And on two days notice, I mean, I remember I was in Michigan and I had to basically get in the car and drive to Minnesota to get there in time for a rehearsal the next day. And I didn't have any time to like look at the music. So all I did was throw on Spotify and threw on the recordings that I was gonna be playing with them. And I was shocked at how easily it was coming back. I mean, Mm. I was just kind of like fingering along like in the air and I was like, oh wow, this is very much still here. And then I got to the hotel room and played everything down and it was pretty much there. So this kind of slow, methodical approach to memorization that I've cultivated, I've tried to apply to different parts of my life. And I think that's just effective. So just like you said, moving slowly through things not only helps kind of in the moment hurriedness and anxiety and bringing that down, but it just helps you play better. And I think that's just reason enough for anyone to cultivate these behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. The... You know, and going back to what you were talking about with um, kind of trust in the process, too, I think that's a hard part for a lot of, especially younger musicians, younger students and things like that to kind of work on. Because let's say, you know, you get handed a, a book for your or- your like your university orchestra and it's got like three big pieces in it that are all big pieces and it's a ton of music to learn and you've got like a week before the first rehearsal or whatever it happens to be, right? The first inclination we usually have is like, Oh God, I got to start practicing like 12 hours a day right now. And I'm just going to stay in this practice room until I, I know this entire, whatever, whatever the first piece is or the first movement or whatever the thing is for that moment, mm-hmm. rather than trusting that if you come at it from this slower, you know, methodical technique, then 
it's going to be there when you need it to be. You know, yeah. like how do you how how do you help your students to kind of build on that that internal trust? Because it is a challenging thing to work on at first. Yeah. Um, or how did you or maybe how did you kind of did you were you like always like that? Or do you remember a time when you kind of finally f- figured that out and you had a, like a little flip, you know, in your in your approach to performance and preparation? Well, internally, I would say. So I think I've taken 35 professional auditions, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a big deal to like say that out loud. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, this guy's taking a lot of auditions. Um, but I just sort of look back at myself historically and I'm like, hey, the times that I did the best and the times that I was in finals or almost won were those times that I started eight months out and started with half tempo practice, lots of listening, making a playlist of all the recordings. And the times that I didn't do well were the times that I was like, oh God, this is a job that I really want. I need to really move quickly and get to step two or three without moving through step one. Yeah. Um, and there are times, man, like I remember I had an audition last year that it was a job that I really wanted. I had been playing there a lot. And I just, looking back, I feel like I was kind of doomed from the beginning because mm. I was like, oh, I know this music. I'm going to try to start everything at tempo and then just try to have the most musical approach. And it was like, no, I got to the day and there were a lot of like just silly mistakes because I feel like I wasn't as intimately linked to the music as if I were had I done that half tempo practice. So really it's just, you know, trial and error for me. I've made a lot of mistakes <laughs> and it's like yeah. now I'm, I'm still obviously making mistakes because there were recent auditions where I'm like you could have moved a lot slower and maybe you would have done better but in those cases I try to be forgiving of myself I try to just look at it as a learning experience and be like okay well a mistake once is not a big deal but if you let that mistake repeat itself that's really when you should have probably learned the first time Um, with my students it's really trying to get them to simplify things as uh, you know as elementarily as possible in lessons like really if they play a phrase for me and i'm just not getting a sense of the articulations i will have them play everything that's slurred in a line and then everything that's articulated in time so there's a bunch of gaps in the music right and uh then have them you know change the rhythm and have them do those mental exercises and those are just things that are you can do them immediately but as is with most things, the, the idea in and of itself is not revolutionary, but it's revolutionary when people actually apply it because there are so few people out there who actually take the time to do things like this in their practice. So I think it's really just in lessons, particularly with my students, just showing them that, yeah, you can do this right now and then have them play it. And if it doesn't go well, of course, we can like go down a different path, but I would right. say 80 to 90% of the time it works quite well. And then they're able to play it better than they did the first time. And then they're like, huh, like maybe I should do it like this more often. <laughs> weird. And I think that yeah. weird, like slowing yeah. things down, it sounds better. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's a good point because I, I do think it's, it's really, really helpful if you have a teacher, you know, like you who is willing to do those steps, you know, in a lesson and you value the, the idea of, 
of showing like step by step how to fix something like that or an mm-hmm. option, at least one way to kind of address some issues that you see. Um, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us who teach students that, that that's such an important part. That we have to remember that it's not just about critiquing the way that they bring something in, right, and trying to fix it, you know, with phrasing or with articulation or whatever, but like actually showing them a process that they can then take away for themselves. Um, I think a, a transition that a lot of people struggle with is like once you're finished with, you know, an undergraduate degree or whatever degree you're working on and or if you're, you know, in a summer break or something, all of a sudden you're your own teacher, right? You don't have those external ears to kind of help and to guide you and to give you all the answers. And so you have to figure out ways to kind of, well, number one, like, you know, understand when there's issues and number two, be able to deal with them in a way that's, you know, mentally healthy and then how to approach the, the fixing of those things and so that's a lot to do on your own which is challenging at first yeah sure. that's a that's a huge gap for a lot of people and i tell my students all the time that you know i'm here to teach them how to play their instrument but i think the kind of biggest sub goal of that is to teach them how to practice because i only spend an hour a week with them but they spend every hour of the week with themselves so <laughs> right. like how on earth am I going to enact kind of an upheaval in them by only spending that hour a week with them. So I feel like most of the time that I'm teaching, I'm actually just teaching them how to practice things on their own instead of, I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be things that I teach them in the lesson, but so much of just learning the repertoire, it's like they'll play something down and it's like, okay, this is how you're going to work on this section. And we're going to try it right now and see if it sticks. And if there's any hint of it sticking then i will guide you down this path but if i'm still seeing that it's just not registering with you i'll adapt and i will try to find another solution for you um and i I, that's sort of one of the reasons why i love teaching you know i had a job in a in an orchestra for about four or five years and for me i mean especially as a tuba player in an orchestra it was just not stimulating enough i mean we would just like go six or seven weeks and sometimes i would have the week off and that would be good because I would get to do other projects, but I would spend most of my time playing Pops concerts. And, you know, the beginning of the year, we would have Chike 4 and end of the year, we would have Chike, or Chike 6 or Mahler 5. <laughs> and it was right. like yeah. all of my time during the year, we just spent waiting for those big concerts and they would happen so seldomly. Whereas this teaching is just, I mean, it's always changing allows me to be spontaneous and it also allows me to do other things artistically so i think my i've identified within myself that when i was growing up i was like tuba player in an orchestra that's like the thing that i want to do and yeah i want to do that but i think the combination in my cup is like 30 percent orchestra 40 percent teaching and then 30 percent non-musical stuff yeah. and that's kind of the, the the combination that makes me feel the most um, satisfied artistically and it also gives me the most amount of time off of the instrument and allows me to live my life and be a human being which is very yeah. important <laughs> yeah absolutely I think you identified a really important thing which is to to work on really truly understanding what makes you happy and being okay with that mm-hmm. whatever you figure out because for I mean it would probably happen to you too when you were you know a young student in school or whatever or you're taking lessons or playing in youth orchestra or whatever whatever level you are at, right? Someone basically got the idea into your head that like the ultimate goal for all classical musicians should be like tenure position in a classical orchestra. Like mm-hmm. that should be your goal, period, end of end of goal list. And then everything else is kind of bonus, 
you know, but that's the thing that everyone should be shooting for. And I mean, that's, it wasn't ever intentionally spelled out for me that way, but I think that it was a pretty, a pretty common belief anyway, amongst my peers and amongst my professors and stuff like that, that that was kind of the, the goal for everybody. Right. So if you didn't like that goal, like what, like what was the point of doing a degree in performance or, or doing a master's or whatever. Right. No, one of my biggest bugaboos about just music education in general is I feel like most teachers just put their students into buckets. And those buckets are play in an orchestra, be a teacher, either college or high school, or music as a secondary or tertiary thing that you do. And those are kind of the three buckets. And even you know in interviews that I've done for teaching positions, it's been like, I try to intentionally not do that with my students. And the nice thing about my, my studio at Vanderbilt is that all of my students are double majoring in something. So they are either pre-med and tuba or uh, business and tuba or economic Spanish and tuba. It's like, awesome. He's, he's so smart. Anyway, and I think that, uh, you know, just, just trying to cultivate that same, you know, what is the balance in the cup that I was talking about before early on with those students. But also a big thing for me was being okay if those goals change over time. Because again, when I was an undergrad and even masters, I was like, the only thing that I can do is win an audition. And then I won an audition and it was like, not great for me that's nothing to say like no you know bad against anyone who's ever won an audition and loves it but just personally i think where i was at the time and you know the particular situation that i was thrust into i just didn't want that to be what i did for 40 years and i had an offer for a teaching position and i was like yeah let's try this out and it just sort of opened my eyes to yeah, like you do not have to have a cookie cutter career and your goals can change. And just that allowance and being okay with possibly asking yourself the question, well, yeah, do I still want to do this? And just having, you know, particularly having an experience and being like, was this just a one-off experience? And is this just how I'm responding to this one experience? Or is this just how I feel about this in general? So it's this allowance. It's it's just being okay with possibly having your goals change. Because in other careers, man, like I feel like people change jobs all the time. But something about the music profession, it's like, okay, you win that job and you stay in it for 50 or 60 years. And if you're not happy, then that's you. Right. <laughs> that's right. just not true at all. And I think that that sort of upheaval is happening a lot more in our industry right now. That more people are sort of reckoning with the fact that when they win a position... It's like that might not be the thing that they have for their entire careers. And a lot more people are winning jobs in orchestras or getting teaching positions and then possibly moving to something else. So many people are like doing coding now or that's just an example. I mean, a lot of people are moving to other things, um, especially in response to the pandemic. Like That changed everything for so many people. But again, it's just like asking yourself that question. If, If you're having trouble motivating yourself, maybe it's just a sort of season of your life. But it also might be that maybe this isn't sort of the direction you want to go in and you might just need to pivot a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the acknowledgement of, I think a lot of what we've been talking about is it's boiling down to, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but it's boiling down to this allowance to 
to be truthful with yourself and like look inside and be more aware of what you actually need as a human being rather it's the way that you structure your time throughout the day whether it's you know how you're preparing repertoire for an audition or a solo recital or lessons week to week or whatever it might be if it's you know truth about what you want to do professionally about you know what kind of music you like to play if you want to keep playing music like all these things rely on being okay like looking inside and seeing what's actually what you actually need and, and want as a human being. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a big, so, so I did my yoga teacher training about seven years ago and that was a big change for me internally because in my teacher training, the teacher talked a lot about just turning inward. And if you are having trouble with a particular decision or again, a season of your life, I just feel like most of the time the answer is inside of you and you can turn to your own personal experience and have that sort of guide you through that storm or that particular season. Um, this is really uh, sort of moving back to that self-care seminar that I've done a couple times. The last part of that presentation, I talk about the importance of community and supporting each other and how when someone tells me that they are bad at listening to people or bad at just advising people on their issues, I just get so worked up because I think that listening to someone is one of the easiest things that we could do. Um, and just typically when people are, again, they're, they're, they feel like they're bad at listening to people, it's because they're either too wrapped up in themselves <laughs> or they might just be trying to ascribe their own personal you know story to someone else um so a big part of the, that last slide in the presentation is just being like if somebody opens up to you about something just open your ears and try to connect them with things that have worked with them for them in the past and ultimately i think that will lead them in the right direction but it's sort of a little cheesy a little disney but the answer oftentimes is inside of you based on your gut feeling about something or your own personal experience with something. Yeah, so true. And it, it's a it's a challenge to learn that and to really accept the fact that you can you can help yourself and you can guide yourself in a in a responsible way if you allow it to happen. Not to say that you don't need friends, you don't need community. As you said, it's, it's super important to have, you know, friends and just a, a, a social group that's going to help you and can listen right when you need it. Um, but trusting that you might know what's best for yourself if you really let let that question kind of sink in and, and process for a while. Um, yeah, so important. Um, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, there's so much more that I'd love to talk about, but I think we can kind of put a, a pin in today's conversation anyway and maybe look forward to another couple. I'd love to talk more about your yoga training and how that's impacted yourself as a performer but also as a teacher and everything else and um, many other ideas. But uh, I'm sure there's lots of people who are listening who would love to kind of connect with you, Jared, or to just learn more about what you're doing, your seminars and your teaching and things like that and performing, obviously. So what's the best way for people to reach out and get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean... Instagram, it's just my name, Jarrett McCourt, Facebook, my email um, is on my Instagram page and my Facebook. So I'm very available. <laughs> People Great. can just reach out that way. And then my bio and, and easier ways to contact me are on the Vanderbilt website, 
as well. So if you just Google search me, I'm sure you can find a way if you want to connect. And just open door if anyone is struggling, particularly with their mental health, that you're not alone. And there are services out there like Crisis Text Line that you can text into, um, in addition to probably a community of people around you. But if you are ever in a place where you just need to talk about whatever it is that might be going on in your life, please just send me an email and I can point you in the right direction or talk to you. Great. Yeah, so many good reminders about the necessity for being connected with our mental state and and how we it's really easy to get overworked as as any kind of musician at any level, any human being really, but we are especially um, especially set up to be little balls of stress and anxiety when we have the tools and the ability to to help ourselves and help others. So yeah, just one just one final thought. It's it's at the end of my presentation, I always say that the the healthiest people mentally are not the people with an absence of mental health issues, but they're the people with the most tools to deal with them. And those people, I think, are just, you know, they know what it takes to get themselves to a better place. And that's the key, I think. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jarrett, for your time and your expertise. And I look forward to talking to you soon. My pleasure, man. Another huge thank you to Jarrett for a wonderful interview. And thank you all so much for listening. You can keep up to date on all new podcast releases and other exciting news by following me on Instagram at MindfulMusicalLife or by visiting the website MindfulMusicalLife.com. If you have a suggestion for a future topic or guest, 